Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science Across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about sciencey things. My name is Stu and on this week's show I'm going to talk about why some very, very rich people want to put wires into your brain so they can read your thoughts. And why you should let them or why you shouldn't let them. Yeah, look, I'll just let people make up their own mind about who they let read their private thoughts. Chris, what have you brought in for us? Well, speaking of crazy projects, I'm going to look at where we're at in the search for alien life. Now, I don't want to go too far down the the UFO and Area 51 kind of trail. I I thought you were going to say you don't want to go too far down the back of the couch in the search for alien life. Hopefully there aren't any there. No, I hope not. Yeah. But because, um, yeah, those things I found, I had a look at those. I'll talk about that. They're not very terribly scientific, those kind of things. But, um, yeah, have a look at There's been a few kind of alien-related news items lately, and I thought I would just have a look and see what they tell us. Um, spoiler alert, we haven't found aliens. What's the real science behind uh, all of the aliens? Is there any real science? Yeah, of course there is. But, yeah, we'll, we'll have a look at that. Definitely real science looking for aliens, but mm. some of, not not very fruitful so far. Yeah. Is that that. The deal. And there may be reasons, but we'll find out. Okay. And we have Jacinta in the studio with us once again. Yes. And you have brought a story for us as well. Yes. I'm going to be talking about meteorites and one particular one that was found in our metaphorical, literal backyard, really, in um, Maryborough in Victoria. So very exciting. So they do fall around all over the place. Even, they do. Even in people's backyards. Yeah. Well, this one, it wasn't quite a backyard, but it was. it was like in a... It's in Victoria. It's very cool. And I'm also going to tell you how you can find your own meteorite in your own backyard. So, Well, that is very exciting. So stay tuned for that later in the show. So you guys have phones, I assume. I sure do. I'm looking at it right now. Hey, put it, put your phone down, please. <laughs> Fine. And how do you use your phone to get information? I Google things on my phone or I look at my phone. Yeah, okay. So probably most mobile phone users these days in Australia would have some form of what used to be called smartphones, but which we now call phones. Um, and to be honest, the touchscreen was a huge breakthrough in interfacing technology and combined with voice recognition has kind of changed the way uh, many people access information through their phones. But how would you feel about having a phone or other device that responded to your thoughts directly? It sounds terrifying, doesn't it? (laughs) Instead of having to do all that pesky work of talking and moving a single digit across the screen of your phone, you could just think what you wanted your phone to do and it would do it? No? no you don't look it, very I impressed. mean, no, it does sound – it sounds good in like a perfect world, but I don't know if we're creating this technology in a perfect world. And I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I feel like we evolved opposable thumbs for a reason and that reason is operating a touchscreen. <laughs> it's just giving the thumbs up. Okay. Symbol. That's why we evo- evolved thumbs. Look, but one of our favourite billionaire philanthropists slash supervillains, Elon Musk – Uh, already owns a company that intends to make that thought-reading tech a a reality. Um, Neuralink is the name of his corporation, which was launched in 2016. Very quiet 
because mm. I didn't hear anything about that until a couple of days ago. Um, been into your brain. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Musk himself recently announced their intention to start human trials as early as next year on their new mind-reading implants. Doesn't that sound cool? Mind-reading implants. Um, the, the thing that they're talking about having is they keep referring to this, all of the news I kept reading about it, saying a sewing machine-like apparatus to put implant threads into your brain, <laughs> none of which sounds... Enticing so you have to a me. sewing machine on your head that has wires going into your brain. They basically knock you out and sew threads into your brain. Um, so implants already exist that allow computers to read neural activity of the human brain. Uh, and the US FDA has approved such machines for use in humans for various functions already. Uh, and mostly they're used to help people with mobility restrictions to carry out tasks that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do using external manipulation aids, and even drive vehicles in some cases uh, that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do without these without these implants. Yeah, um, pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Uh, and But these kind of implants so far are limited to less than a dozen direct contacts with live neurons in someone's brain while they're awake, basically. Um, some of these uh, threads or contacts read the brain activity and use that to signal or give instructions to an external device. Others provide feedback to the brain, which uh, stimulates specific target neurons to provide simulated sensory feedback. Um, although some people have said, if you can't tell the difference, is it really simulated or is it just sensory feedback? Um, the fact that it's coming from a machine and not your own nervous system is it a simulation or is it just the same thing from a different input source? Tricky question. Does that mean of. that if you were just a brain in a box and all of the neurons were going perfectly that it wouldn't be a simulation? I think we'll leave that one for the philosophers <laughs> to answer. They can ponder on that one. Um, but as far as the science goes, uh, Musk basically posted a recruitment video. He wants smart guys and girls from all over the world to come and work for Neuralink to make this a reality for uh, for people. Um, must must be mad scientists, basically. Pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, you know, I bring bring your own lab coat. I don't know. Yeah, yeah crazy works. hair. Yeah, you've got to have your own uh, glassware and bubbling yeah. potions and stuff. Um, but uh, so he said that uh, their device would have would be still an external device would have a thousand times more connections to the brain simultaneously as any existing neural interface which makes that potentially 10,000 individual connections to targeted areas of a brain uh, all capable of sensing neural activity and providing direct feedback what Musk calls a read-write uh, capability. So it can give messages to your brain and receive them from your brain. So at a rate of, of a thousand times more than anyone's done ever before. But like, okay, if you've got a phone, right, using that analogy again, you can think about something, right? Say I want to think about pineapples. But if I think about pineapples, I'm not automatically searching the internet for pineapples. If I'm thinking pineapples and I've got this neural link in, does that mean that I'd automatically get that feedback? How would that work? Yeah, the look, drone I... would deliver a pineapple to you. <laughs> and it would pay express shipping. And... Yeah, it's in, in combination with Amazon or someone like that. Look, there are, I think there's obviously got to be some sort of learning 
associated with it. You can't. You're not. You're not just going to be able to plug in implants into your brain and suddenly you'll be able to have these amazing <laughs> superpowers. You'll probably have to learn how to use them, and and the artificial intelligence that'll be connected to it will have to learn how you think as well. Um, and speaking of which, um, Musk talks about giving humans the potential to interface directly with artificial intelligences, which. On the other hand, he's already said pose a significant risk to human civilization if left unregulated. So what he's saying is plug your brain into these artificial <laughs> intelligences, which pose a threat to human civilization. <laughs> I think what he was getting at was that um, if unregulated, they'd be dangerous. So we need to connect our brains to them so that we can control them. Absolutely. I think that's what he is talking about because he's talking about giving humans the opportunity to merge with AIs, which sounds a bit like the uh, von Neumann's technological singularity which has been sort of mm. talked about for a really long time where humans and technology become indistinguishable and you know l let's be honest most people don't ever have their phone more than a couple of centimeters <laughs> from their hand so maybe we're already inside the singularity looking out and not outside looking in but uh the potential for uh mobility impaired people use this technology for even basic activities like walking you know if you could design um I've seen sort of prosthetics that actually move people's legs for them, but if they can think about moving their legs, they will be able to do it themselves whenever they want to without having to have some sort of uh, external remote control device. That's pretty amazing kind of uh, technology for that sort of application, I think. Yeah, well, I guess the thing, if it's got some very kind of well-defined task, yeah, then you may be able to do it because you can then learn to use, your brain can learn to use it for that task and can adapt fairly well. So it's not just seamlessly maybe integrating with your normal thought processes, but it's adding on an ability which then you learn to use. Yeah. And what I find interesting, like, so Elon Musk, um, not as I used to believe, got rich from inventing the Musk stick, but he invented, <laughs> he invented PayPal. And, you know, the idea of maybe of something, you think about something like that, you know, maybe a, a payment thing that you just think buy. Uh, and like, like a simple, like, instruction like that rather than just a fully integrated Google thing. It's just maybe a simple thing. I don't want a PayPal thing stuck <laughs> into my head. I'm just saying that that is kind of thing would be like a simple instruction yeah. like that. You can probably more imagine as a useful kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, even if, even if you did, you know, if you broke it down to individual words or concepts, then yeah. 10,000 is a pretty big vocabulary. So yeah. it's a whole lot of uh, potential options that you could get things to do. I think what, I think one of the things that worries me though, is this stuff sounds like it's a, it's a long way off and you look at the speed that technology develops. If you've got implants put into your head, and then five years later, that is like, seems like ancient technology. Then do you have to get those implants removed and new ones put in? Like, how is that going to work? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, the kind of uh, device they're looking at now and sort of what they're putting in their promotional material is about the size of a little old-fashioned uh, hearing aid. So okay. it fits behind your ear. But in the future, they are talking about microchips that get implanted directly into your yeah. brain. So, you know, you'll be... Hopefully, there won't be you know fashion issues associated with which model of of implant you have. Um, but at this at this point, I think um, you know actually being able to control things with with thoughts, we already know that that's a possibility. But reading what people are thinking is not really on yeah, the same realm. Off, it's yeah. a really really long way off, and we don't really have a good understanding of how thoughts get laid down and transferred really at this point anyway. So um, we're not really worried about mind reading uh, so much as, you know, looking at the potential of what good things this technology might be able to do, I think. Um, 
But I have to say, I already feel slightly more dependent on my phone than I'd like. And imagine if your brain Wi-Fi dropped out in the middle of giving a speech, for example, and you didn't know what to say next. Or worse, if you lost your downloaded muscle memory uh, while doing a dangerous job somewhere, bang, it's all gone. Your your onboard computer crashes and you lose all of your learned skills in the middle of doing something dangerous. Um, I think I'd just keep my non-Musk flavored brain uh, as is at the moment. Okay, this is Lost in Science. My name is Chris. And look, there have been a few unprovably alien-related news items of late. I don't know if you've seen, there's been some recent reports in the New York Times, no less, of US Navy pilots seeing UFOs and USOs. Uh, that's unidentified submersible objects. There's a really strange report on that. Uh, and there's been the recent sort of thing to storm Area 51, like that internet joke gone out of control. Um, <laughs> like many internet jokes yeah. do. So these are all interesting stories, but I've, I've looked for a science angle on them and there really isn't much of one because with all these things where people say them, there was a UFO or there are aliens being held in a, some military facility, it's basically, you know, it's an investigation. Does that thing actually exist or not? You know, you can't speculate on the science of it until you actually have some data. Yeah. You know, and the best scientists can do in these circumstances is try and use our existing knowledge to come up with alternative explanations. And sometimes there might be some weird unknown phenomena going on that we don't that we don't know about. And there could be some useful speculation from that from the scientific side of things. But, you know, if someone says they saw an object breaking the laws of physics, we can't really analyze that with our current laws of physics for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah. Actual existence of aliens, most scientists would say, no, we haven't actually encountered aliens yet. Uh, now, this sometimes is a bit of a circular argument, going back to the UFOs, though, for a moment, because sometimes you see well, people say, oh, well, if aliens existed, then surely you would, would have encountered them by now, so therefore they don't exist. So anyone who says they've met an alien, surely it's, they're wrong because aliens don't exist, and we know that because we haven't met them. So there's kind of a circular argument there, but I'm still going to go with what the general, <laughs> the general <laughs> conclusion is. Anyway, uh, plus interstellar travel is really difficult. You know? Very far From, away. Well, no, as far physics. as we know, yeah. Yeah, and the these UFOs that people see, that the flying saucers and stuff, don't seem to be doing anything useful. So it's a long way to come to not do anything terribly useful. <laughs> I don't know. People go on holidays and take photos of stuff that have no meaning to them all the time. So maybe that's all they're doing. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe if they're out there, should, they should write in. <laughs> Meanwhile, there are scientists who are looking for alien life. Um, again, obviously unsuccessfully so far. The Breakthrough Listen Project, uh, which is another project by a billionaire. This one is uh, Yuri Milner, also another physicist. You know who would like to have keep a track of physicists up to strange projects? Yep, yep. yep. Um, so that's the latest big effort to search for extraterrestrial intelligence using... Um, 
using newer technology. So, you know, things like I think NASA largely doesn't get involved much in the search extraterrestrial intelligence, which is why it's left to the billionaires. Um, the Breakthrough Listen Project recently released their preliminary results of their search of 1,327 nearby stars looking for alien techno signatures. Um, I don't know whether 1,327 sounds like a lot to you. Um, it's In the vast scheme of the universe, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I found a paper that compared the search so far to a hot tub in the Earth's oceans. Like if you compare right. what, what are the galaxy we've looked at, it's the equivalent of searching a hot tub in the entire <laughs> oceans of Earth. So they're looking for, <coughs> looking for techno signatures. What, what sort of beats per minute were they actually looking for in those... We're not talking EDM here. Oh, sorry. No, no. So what they did, they used um, radio and optical telescope observations from the Green Bank Radio Telescope in West Virginia and also CSIRO's Parks Radio Telescope in Australia. Um, They had thousands of hours of observations of nearby stars across billions of frequency frequency channels, including narrow-range radio frequencies and also looking for bright lasers that might be used as a form of communication or even a propulsion technology. Um, Yuri Milner also, he's the guy who has the plan to propel spacecraft using lasers. It's all connected. Um, but yeah, anyway, so far it's so silent. Uh, any promising signals turn out to be human generated. Um, they're going to keep going. They hope to eventually scan one million stars, which is a bit more than a hot tub, but still not a great amount. Um, but yeah, they've released what they have at the moment. Um, so yeah, so far life hasn't shown its way in, in uh, what we've seen. There may be other explanations for why this is so rare. So you know, because there's been a lot of excitement about all these exoplanets being discovered orbiting other stars. Uh, you know, many of them that have been found have been what they call the Goldilocks zone, where it's just the right temperature for, um, well, for liquid water to exist. And so therefore, as far as we know, that's a prerequisite for life. Mm. So, you know, the, people look at these Goldilocks zones as, as, yeah, one of, the, one of the, um, the big requirements. But there was a recent paper published in the Astrophysical Journal that suggested that it could actually be a bit more complicated than that. Um, because this, um, this, all this Goldilocks zone is quite broad, um, to get those suitable temperatures, you also require um, a greenhouse effect like we have on Earth, thanks to our carbon dioxide, our increasing levels of carbon dioxide, yeah. some would say. Um, we would <laughs> we would say, yeah. basically. <laughs> but yeah, you, you do need a greenhouse effect. Otherwise, it tends to get very cold at night, for instance. Um, now, on the outer edges of this kind of so-called habitable zone, they did the calculations and worked out that you would need a lot more carbon dioxide than we have in the atmosphere on Earth to keep it warm enough. And so that would be so much carbon dioxide that it probably would be incompatible with life that we know. Um, and also there is then another carbon-related chemical, um, carbon monoxide, um, which is not so good to have in your atmosphere because it is poisonous. Yeah. Um, on the Earth, the sun's radiation basically causes chemical reactions that cause carbon monoxide to degrade. But um, many of the exoplanets that have been discovered so far, they're orbiting small red dwarf stars who might not give enough radiation to destroy the carbon monoxide. So some of these planets that look like they're in the right area may have poisonous atmospheres because their star is not strong enough to clean it up. The way I, I think that the, so the Goldilocks zone, from what I understand, is also Mars and Venus, right? So, like, that's yep. our Goldilocks zone. Yep. So, for every one planet that's habitable, we've got two that's not. Yeah, and that's, well, that also shows the importance of atmosphere. So, Mars has too little atmosphere, and hence, yeah, there's not enough to breathe there. Um, Venus has too much atmosphere, and hence it's too hot. So... Yeah, it is. It, there is. It, it's a good demonstration of why these are important factors. Yeah, totally. 
Um, so yeah, it is still all unknown. Um, until we can actually find life elsewhere in the universe, it's pretty hard to say how common it is or isn't because we we're just speculating based on what we see on Earth. We don't know what the real rules are. Yeah, we've got a, we've got a sample size of one, and we're yeah. trying to extrapolate from that, which is pretty well impossible. Yeah, and this is why the surges within our solar system are significant. Um, there was a bit of excitement recently. You might have noticed about there was a plume of methane observed on Mars by the Curiosity rover. Now on Earth, methane tends to be produced by living or or decomposing creatures. So it's quite a promising sign that there could be life. But there are also geological, like kind of non-living ways of producing methane. And there's even some doubts about whether this thing is a real phenomenon because uh, there's a European Space Agency orbiter that failed to detect any methane. So, yeah, we don't know what it is at the moment. And... uh, it's, it's not actually proof of life yet. So the search will go on until we actually find something, I guess. Um, I mentioned the Breakthrough Listen project. They have released all their data to the public in the hope that someone else using different techniques may find something in the data they've got so far. So if you want, you can cr- help crunch the data and they'll keep watching the skies while you kind of watch your computer screen and hope that something shows up. So we're going to be talking about meteorites. Well, in particular, one meteorite um, that a man named David Hole found in 2015 while he was prospecting in the Maryborough Regional Park near Melbourne. So he was digging a hole. Uh, he was actually using a metal detector. So he was using a metal detector to try and find gold in this, this area. In the um, hills. He discovered something out of the ordinary, a very heavy reddish rock that was resting on some yellow clay. So he took it home and tried everything to open it, sure that there was a gold nugget inside the rock. He tried a rock saw, an angle grinder, a drill, even put it in acid, but not even a sledgehammer could make a crack. He, so this is in 2015, and he actually held onto it until 2018, <laughs> assuming that it was worth a lot of money, until he decided to take it to the Melbourne Museum to see if they could tell him what it was. Because I'm assuming that in 2015 technology was still fairly advanced then. I mean, now we're a lot, now we're in the far future of 2019. But... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he could have Googled it, but yeah, okay. he, he didn't. I mean, okay. this guy, he, 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 thought he, had a, he thought he had a gold nugget, you know. He could have yeah. Googled it, but there's no NBN in Maryborough. That's so true. He yeah. hasn't got a really good didn't... internet connection. <laughs> <laughs> he decided he was going to hold on to it. But yeah, no, he took it to the Melbourne Museum. Um, and what he'd been trying so hard to open was not in fact a nugget. It was a meteorite. Um, and researchers from the Melbourne Museum have recently released a paper about the find, and it's really cool. This meteorite is a H5 ordinary chondrite. I think that's how you say it. It's a huge 17 kilograms, and on the outside, it's reddish brown, but on the inside, you can see these beautiful crystallized droplets of metallic minerals. 
That's a pretty common thing in these chondrite meteorites. Carbon dating suggests the meteorite had been on Earth between 100 and 1,000 years. I know that's a huge margin, but thank you, carbon dating. Um, But there's been a number of meteor sightings between 1889 and 1951 that could correspond to its arrival on our planet. And here's what makes this really cool. It's actually one of only 17 meteorites ever recorded in Victoria, and it's the largest, second largest, sorry, chondratic mass after a huge 55-kilogram specimen identified in 2003. So only 17, but there's Mm -hmm. obviously a lot more out there. We just haven't been able to find them. So how do you know if there's a meteorite in your backyard? Well, have a look for weird-looking and heavy rocks. Those rocks will be incredibly hard to break and will usually set off a metal detector because of the metal um, little crystallized bits inside. So they're mostly metal-based yeah. meteorites? Yeah. So okay. they're, they're a mixture of like dirt and metal and, well, some meteorites are, some aren't, but the ones that you're likely to see in your yard are probably going to be that. Should you look for craters? Oh, of course. But if it's going to be, if it's had been there for a while... There's probably not going to be a crater anymore. Right. Especially if you built your house out of the top of it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and you probably would have seen it if it if, if there's a meteorite with a crater, that's like a meteorite that you, like a meteor you would have seen or you would have like felt it there. If it's a small meteorite, you might not. Um, so there's also groups like Fireballs in the Sky in Australia that encourage citizen scientists to get involved in their research by reporting fireball sightings. So a fireball sighting is the kind of thing that you would get from a meteor before it crash lands into the earth. There were some, a couple of big ones earlier this year, I think, weren't there? Some bright flashes, but I think they landed yes. over the ocean. Like there's one that was in South Australia and Victoria, it was so- Southern Victoria that was seen. Yeah, I think so. A very bright one. And yeah, I think it hit the ocean somewhere. So it's unlikely, to, I guess, to recover a meteorite from that one. That's was- the worst bit, really, that there's so much ocean over the planet, you can't pick up all the meteorites. Mm. Well, not only that, it'd be really hard to figure out if, if you did see a flash in the sky where it was landing or what, you know, distance <laughs> away it was and all well, that sort of what, stuff. That's what the fireballs in the sky does. So there's an app that you can oh, do okay. to, and you record your sighting, you record where, which direction it was traveling and this kind of stuff. And the idea is if enough people report it and you can... They can triangulate it. Yeah, essentially yeah, where wow. it's going. And they send people out to look for it. And there's been 3,400 reports on the app. So they've actually done quite a few um, reports so far. So how do meteorites even make it to Earth in the first place? Um, Our solar system was once a spinning pile of dust and chondratic rock. Slowly, gravity pulls a lot of this material together and to create planets. Um, But the leftovers ended up in, mostly ended up in huge asteroid belts, such as the one between Mars and Jupiter. One day, some asteroids collide, sending a fragment hurtling towards Earth. Although our atmosphere does a good job trying to burn up meteors, around 5 to 10% of meteors will make it through the atmosphere and hit the ground. Um, really big meteors can also cause a shockwave when it breaks apart in the atmosphere, which can huge, which can cause huge damage similar to um, bombs. So that's like the, the Chelyabinsk one in Russia from a few years ago. Exactly, mm. yeah. And so that one was over a big forest and I think there was two of them in Russia. One of them actually went over a city, I think. But yeah. another one went over a forest and it was huge. It was 500 kilotons or something. Was... That was a Tunguska one from 1910, I think, wasn't it? Oh, uh, was it? Yeah. I think there's, I don't know. Anyway, but there's been a couple of them, yeah. but very terrifying. Um, and there's actually some difference between the terms, um, the asteroid terms, as it were. So the words asteroid, meteor, and meteorite are used kind of interchangeably in some circles, but they're not. They all have different meanings. And the uh, English person in me is needs you to know the difference. Um, so an asteroid is a metallic rock, 
object in space. Usually it's smaller than a planet. Um, comets are instead are not metallic. Instead, they're made up of ice, dust and rock. And they're usually too fragile to make it through our atmosphere. Meteor is an asteroid or other object that burns when it hits the atmosphere. This is what you see when you look up in the sky and see a shooting star or a fireball. And then finally, a meteorite is a meteor that makes it through the atmosphere and lands on Earth. So totally go out there and see what you can find in your own backyard. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.